looking to stand out from the crowd? Are you looking for exclusive content you can't get anywhere else? Sign up for the shoulder of Orion Patreon at bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support and show the world you're something special. The following audio entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie, and I'm joined by Patrick and Dan. And today we are here to discuss a, uh, a well, uh, an audio drama that we released in June. I can't even believe it. That was June that we released that audio drama of last year. We sort of released it into the world. Um, we definitely got some some feedback. It seemed like, you know, it was something that we worked on for about a year and a half or almost two years. And we really felt like we wanted to devote an entire episode um, as to why we released it, the story, just sort of get into that a little bit, and to essentially re-release it to our listeners. And uh, as of this recording and the publishing of this episode, it will have been on YouTube publicly through our Perfect Organism YouTube channel for about a week. And so we just wanted to, again, push it out there in a place that's more public, not just through... Podbean or Apple Podcasts and the other places. We really wanted to um, make it available essentially worldwide. But again, we're here to talk about it. And the beginning of Gethsemane, or as we call it, 2020 Gethsemane, was the release of Blade Runner 2049, which of course released, I think it actually was in October of 2017. And at that point was sort of the entry point when we met Dan. I think, when did we meet you, Dan? Like in... In, yeah, like uh, around uh, November of 2017, we started talking, I think. And so I think probably a couple months later in or maybe in December or November, I had this idea. And of course, we had released an audio drama for Perfect Organism, which was called Proximity. So and it got really great reviews. It did really well. It's still out on YouTube if anyone wants to listen to it. And. Um, I was really inspired by the story of Blade Runner 2049, but the idea of who replicants are, what they represent, our political climate, just seeing so many things in the news about the way immigrants are being treated, cages, all of those things. I was watching um, Children of Men. Everything seemed really urgent to me, and I felt like the story, I was inspired to write the story very, very urgently, and um I remember the day that I told you guys, I think it was via text. We were all texting. And I said, I have a story that I need to write. And it came out in four days, the first draft of it. And from there. Which was like 50 something pages. I mean, yeah, it was, it was like 52 feet. pages at first. I think it ended up being like 56 or 57 pages or maybe 59. Um, and from there, the story sort of took root. And it was 
me and Dan, essentially, I mean, Patrick and Micah, who both worked on the the drama, Patrick did the score. We'll get into that a little bit later. Micah made an appearance at the end of the audio drama. And Micah was also the, essentially one of the stars of Proximity, which is the the audio drama we released earlier that year, which I think was in February. And at that point, everyone read it and everybody seemed excited about it. And Dan and I just by chance started talking about the story and going back and forth and Dan giving my, his feedback on story points. Um, in fact, uh, the way the story opens was your idea, Dan, to have uh, an unused idea from the original Blade Runner 2019, the death of a replicant. We, I would say, how, how would you say that? Not regurgitated it, but we utilized that, that missing scene or that deleted scene or that unfilmed scene. And we put it in our story just because I think, and rightly so, I think that you mentioned, Dan, that it felt like it was not so much a homage to the original Blade Runner, but it felt like we do things that writers for movies do. They go back to old ideas that maybe weren't used and they reincorporate them into new material. So it felt really right. Right. Yeah, and, and I think um, you're right about writers in general, but I think specifically the process of Fancher's script for the first film and then Fancher's uh, and Green's script for the second film um, famously 2049 opens with a uh, discarded idea from the original script for the first film discarded due to budget mostly not because it was bad in fact we saw how great it really was when they incorporated it into the Sapper Morton scene from 2049 I think most people know that that was famously written for a Deckard as the Blade Runner scene from the first movie um, so I think there's two things that we sort of tried to follow somewhat in the footsteps of these great writers. One was in um, reusing ideas that had not been implemented in either of the films, but we, we know generally came from those scripts, deleted scenes, stuff like that. And two, when we had moments of, when we had opportunities to explain something or lay it out or leave it more ambiguous, we always erred on the side of ambiguity mm -hmm. because that was such a tradition with these stories of not painting things in full color for everyone and not treating the audience as if they're a bunch of simpletons. You know what I mean? Like we wanted to treat the audience with respect and intelligence. Um, and we wanted to maintain that really great uh, writing tradition that we love so much about this universe. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of some of the guiding principles that we used, I think, especially when editing um as opposed to when originally writing i mean a little bit in both mm -hmm. but definitely i remember us you know patrick brought up the whole marble block concept of um you know creating something that has a full background and more story than you need and then chipping away out of it to sort of take away the extra details so that everything in the story is plausible and makes sense, but you're pulling things out and leaving them up to people's imaginations, which I think is what people are used to with good science fiction and especially in this universe. Mm -hmm. So I think those were a few of our like guiding principles in writing for you and rewriting for me and editing in general. And really, I think in terms of the heart of the matter, like the story I wanted to tell, uh, you know, if you read or many people know, what inspired Philip K. Dick to write Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep was an account from an SS officer or 
I can't exactly remember, but essentially the idea that how do other the pe- prison guard the, the prison guard like how do people when you stop seeing someone as human when you allow horrible things to happen to them how does that change you as a person and i really was thinking again just because of the whole immigration thing being in the news all over the way they're treated the photos um you know uh things were going on in syria at the time people washing ashore babies washing ashore and i really was inspired to write a story about people who were not seen as people didn't matter if they were that they were manufactured they were people and uh i you know i i just i I the inspiration just came on me and i felt like i had to get it out and then after what was probably i don't know how long we worked on that script for a long time um even before we started casting for it we were, or after we started casting for it, we were still working on the script. I was still sending copies to all to to Dan, to to Patrick, to Micah, and a couple other people just to get feedback on where is it at, what do you guys think. Um, but really wanting to write a story set in the universe of Blade Runner that doesn't follow a Blade Runner. Maybe there's some things that are familiar because I believe that the best sequels tell a different story, and I think when you're writing a sequel and this isn't really a sequel, obviously this is essentially a side story happening within the Blade Runner universe that eventually some familiar people come into the story at the very end, connecting the dots a little bit. But I really feel like if you're going to write a story set within a familiar universe, you can't just do the same thing that you've seen before. They have to be new things. And that was really important for me. And I think all of us that, we tell a story that's not just a Blade Runner looking for replicants. Yeah. Well, and I think a good parallel that we've talked about before and we can, we can think about now, obviously I'm not saying that for many reasons, I'm not saying that our audio drama is on the level of this gigantic Hollywood production, but um, in the way that rogue one was a in between episodes and in between timeline story with entirely new characters yet, you know, Leia makes an appearance and, and there are familiar characters in it that reconnect to the bigger universe. That's kind of the route we took. I know that from the beginning you wanted to have all new characters and tell a new story set in that same environment, but not in LA again. Um, I mean, we came up with Mary's name from the fact that one of those replicants that got fried, which again, due to budget didn't make it into the first film was named Mary. Um, crap, I forget the name of the, uh, of the male replicant, but anyways, um, you know, so you're always trying to make little connections back to the original material while keeping it fresh and keeping it new. Before we continue the discussion about Gethsemane, I really feel like it's incumbent upon us to talk about, um, how it happened, not just in terms of how the writing, the editing, the music, all of that, but much of what we were able to produce came from our funding from Patreon. And I mean, the equipment that we purchased, everything, um, the, you know, we cast it. So we were able to buy food for the cast. We were able to, to give them small, just small gifts, but all of it, we um, were able to do because of our patrons and it would not have been as good without that money there. So I really just wanted to take a moment to say thank you to our patrons. As we continue the discussion about Gethsemane, we would like to do more of these maybe in the future. They are a lot of work. We worked on that thing for almost two years. And uh, the, the reality is afterwards, it was so much work. 
I was like, I don't want to do this for a while, you know. It was a lot of work, but it was really great work. It was great to be able to work with you guys the way that I did. And it was different for me because usually it's been Patrick and me, especially in every project that I've had. It's been Patrick talking back and forth or we're both editing the same project. This time, Patrick wasn't in that equation. You were listening. You were here. You were, you know, but it was mostly me and Dan going back and forth until Patrick felt like, or Patrick, you, I think you told us, like, when you guys feel like it's right, hand it off to me. And eventually, that's what we did. It was it was a great process, though. Um, and it was, I, I had so much fun. And when it was over, it was kind of sad. The writing is almost the easy part. The next step is casting. And we went through a lot with casting. I had a lot of second second thoughts. Even after I record, we recorded everything in L.A. I think it was December of, yeah, it was over a year ago. We recorded everything in L.A., which is crazy. Um, I had second, I second-guessed myself on certain casting choices. But people were like, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's good. And then we released it. And people were like, hey, we love this. This is great. So it was really a great time. Um, we're going to share with you some clips of the making of a, certainly a specific conversation that Dan and I had about uh, some plot points in the audio drama. So if you haven't listened to it yet, I would urge you to listen to 2020 Gethsemane first and listen to the rest of this podcast. Um, we're going to try not to spoil too much of it because there's a lot in there, especially the end is very spoilery in terms of its connections to the larger world. Um, but uh, really the, I think, and I'm sure, Dan, you agree with me, um, this, the audio drama did not find its true legs until Patrick scored it. And I know that was something that was new for you, Patrick, something you hadn't approached in the way that you approached Gethsemane before. And I know we talked about it for a long, long time. And I was sort of, both of us were kind of hands off. I think, Dan, you had a little bit more um, to say than I did, but I was like, I just want to hand it to Patrick and see what he does. And the first original piece that I always got something to say. <laughs> <laughs> the first original piece that you gave to us, Patrick, or you gave to the project was for the trailer, which was gorgeous, as of course I knew it would be. Um, and yeah, so uh, in fact, I, I had to push Patrick. I don't know if he did it just for me or no, I think you eventually you put it in the, the full release of the album, but I had to push Patrick to add the trailer track to the actual album when the soundtrack came out because I loved it so much. I was like missing it. I was like, where's the trailer track? It's so good. You know? And eventually I think it did end up in there, but yeah, you guys are very kind. The, the, the trailer track was, was kind of just a proof of concept for the sort of sound world that I was looking at because kind of like what you were saying before about the, the issue with sequels <clears throat> is it's really hard. I think to do something that can conjure a world that's familiar while not feeling like you're kind of ripping it off or without feeling like you're just sort of regurgitating elements that everybody already knows and everybody's already accustomed to. <clears throat> For me, approaching the music of it, I was really keenly aware of the fact that Blade Runner has, I think actually statistically, the most resampled score of any Hollywood film ever. Um, Van Gelis' music has appeared in countless iterations and in countless places. Uh, there's countless fan tributes. And it, it indeed became a cultural shorthand, like just like you, you know, there's Blade Runner in real life and people take pictures of Shanghai and Toronto and put that in, in Facebook groups. There's, you know, Blade Runner music has a sound to it. It has a, an immediate shorthand. <clears throat> and I was really keenly aware of that as I was putting this score together, that just like your story deviated a lot from what people might be expecting from a, a Blade Runner um, universe piece. Uh, I wanted the score to similarly feel like a Blade Runner universe piece, but seen through a very different prism. 
So, um, so that, that little trailer piece that I put together was, um, I was trying to, I, I was sort of taking some of the elements of Vangelis's music that I really felt attached to, um, specifically for that one, it was his use of drone and the use of temporal modulation over time. So like this idea that you have very simple sounds that can kind of grow and fade into and out of each other, which is what they did in 2049 tremendously well. Um, and then putting them, playing them with acoustic instruments. That's why it's played on a zither, actually, that the theme for the trailer. Um, which is something that, you know, there's some acoustic stuff in, in the Vangelis score, but it's not something that, you know, you sort of assume uh, is acoustic because it's known as this really synth-heavy film score, you know. So anyway, yeah, it was it was interesting for me because I was, you know, really heavily involved right at the beginning um, in those initial conversations and seeing the first drafts of it and, and helping with some of the casting decisions. And then I really specifically didn't want to be close to the project until I got to see it in what was basically its final form. And I think the reason for that is that we have this amazing gift as an audience of experiencing something for the first time. And uh, and I think it's really important to be open to the feeling of experiencing something for the first time and then being able to put that into artwork. Just like we talked about a million times where Denis and the editing staff in 2049 swapped out the score that Ben Walfish had written for that famous moment where Kay's walking through the desert and just substituted the click track for it, basically. That was like a spontaneous moment where where Denny Villeneuve was watching, you know, essentially dailies with music behind it and was like, can we get rid of the music? And he didn't know that that's what he wanted until he was in that moment and the story hit him that way. So there's this real freshness to that approach that I really wanted to um, to keep. And I did, and I got to have a really organic response to it. So that's why if you listen to the trailer music and then you listen to the actual the, the score itself, it's quite different. And why, as Dan pointed out, um, the initial release of the soundtrack didn't even include the trailer music in it. Because the trailer music was for the idea of what I thought this was. And then the music that was written for it was music written for what it actually became as I experienced it as an audience member. Um, which was really cool. I've never really done that before. Um, I've never really scored very much before, honestly, in terms of... I, I mean, I, I've my stuff has been used in film projects, but I haven't scored a film. Um, I've My stuff has been used in audio dramas, but I've never scored an audio drama. My stuff's been used in theatrical productions, but I've never scored uh, like a... Uh, a traditional straight-up theater piece before so this was like a new a new journey for me too as an artist and I, and I really appreciated you guys giving me the latitude and the patience to take time and Jamie especially the fact that you were so um, kind and generous by giving me uh, space to um, kind of take a long time and to get to know it and to not spoil it for me along the way um, it was really great and I think what came out was more organic because of that I, I think it was beautiful I, although I do remember our our running joke where I'm like, Patrick hasn't listened to it yet. Patrick. Has <laughs> <laughs> um, at every turn, you're like I've listened to it. I've listened to it. Um, but what I think right. the brilliance of 2049 is, and I mentioned this, uh, not because I think this piece, I'm very proud of this thing that we've, we've made. I think it's incredible. I, I try to make, I try to approach audio dramas as if I'm making a movie because I don't really like audio dramas, to be honest with you. Most of them I hear are over. They're like, it's like they forget that they're up close at a microphone and they think they're on a theater stage. So everything is overly expressive. Everything is sort of over the top. I've listened to, I've listened to many audio dramas, although I grew up with listening to lights out. Um, oh, all those old, um, radio dramas from like the 1930s and 40s. I still listen to them at night when I'm in bed. Um, I love them. And the way that they're made are like films. They're very understated and creepy and, um, or the Whistler or, um, there's so many old radio dramas that I grew up listening to ever since I was about 10 or 11. I just, 
remember one night I was listening to some radio station in Chicago at, at like as a nine year old and I turned on the station and I was hearing this. I think it was lights out and I was like obsessed with it. And I, my mom used to buy me, um, star Trek, um, with captain Kirk and Spock and they were like books and you'd have to turn the page and they had their little tapes. And I would listen to those books. I would listen to those, those adventures on tape. Like in, I lived on like, I had like, it's like a three bed loft on the top with my light on late into the night. And it was just a time of magic. So audio dramas are very magical for me, but at the same time, um, I feel like most of them are pretty boring. Even the ones in the alien series, which is what I've listened to a lot lately, I've sort of turned off cause I'm like, okay, this is too long. It's overdramatic. Um, the story is just all over the place. So I wanted to make an audio drama that felt like a movie that felt serious. It didn't feel like we were being heavy handed. And I feel like we uh, essentially accomplished it. And I also feel like with the music, with ben, what you know, with what Ben Walfish and Hans Zimmer did in 2049, they subverted expectations. A lot of time people, some of the most hardcore fans, they just, they tend to want to hear the same thing or see the same thing over and over. And I felt like it was really important that we not do that, that we not give people what they've heard or they've seen again and again, because where's the fun in that? Why, you know, um, I, I don't think it's exciting to have new characters do old things. We've talked about this recently. Um, and, but I really felt like, feel like right now it's, I just wanted to kind of go over some of the names of the people who were involved with this, just to let people know what this was. Cause of course it was the three of us behind it all, but there were so many, so many people involved. Um, so I just want to essentially start with the cast and it was starring Miguel Romero, Emily Riker, John Steens. Uh, an old college friend of mine, Taya Lux, uh, uh, a friend of ours and a friend of the show, Evelyn Ray, Yassine Harder, Taylor Waterman, Mike Andrews, Craig Wright, who was the voice of the blimp, Anna Rossi, Brian DeLucci, Gary Levin. D Dan was also, you were uh, a um, Blade Runner in the, in, in the, in the audio drama, Carla Rosa, who was the voice of the blimp, who was just amazing. Well, no, she wasn't a blimp. She was like, a background microphone somewhere in the well, city. Well, no, kind of... no, I, she was a blimp. I mean, really? Yeah, she. I mean, she was like how I wrote her was like the the geisha in in the original. She would be on some mm -hmm. billboard similar, like you would see her. That that's how that's how that's how I had her in my mind. Just like a different version. Interesting. Um, and uh, our friend Simavas, who was uh, the the main Blade Runner at the end, Micah, who plays a very secret and amazing role. Just really quick little bit of dialogue but you know probably one of the most important moments in the film was at the end or sorry in the audio drama was at the end so there's just a few names of everyone who is involved jamie has a small role so oh i do yes i do I, I couldn't find it i couldn't <laughs> find it it's it's distorted and hard to hear but he's in there and uh a lot of so many people went into uh the produ the production and the making of this audio drama and it's one of the best things that i've done we've done and it was great fun and we just felt like we should talk about it a little bit i know this episode isn't going to be that long but we really felt like it was time now that 2019 is behind us um before we get into some more exciting things that are going to be happening with shoulder of orion in the next year in terms of re-engaging uh blade runner 2049 we really wanted to take some time and give some love to a project that means a lot to us. I feel like uh, I remember one thing that Patrick said through this process that was so profound, and I'll give him a chance to see if he can remember. If he doesn't, I'll quote him. But, um, you know, Patrick 
I think you gave us a few tracks as you were going along. You know, we definitely, we definitely heard things, the trailer, and then maybe a couple of tracks before, while you were still halfway through the, the, um, the soundtrack or the score. And, um, you know, to me, not being an artist, the level of knowledge and training musically and in composition and in, you know, your life's work is so overwhelming to me because I could never do anything like that. I mean, I have a good ear and I can listen to it and I can, I can, if someone asks me my opinion, I can be pretty accurate on telling them, you know, you're losing the mood here or this needs this or whatever. Like I could do a little bit of production like that. The more I listen to this stuff and the more I work. Um, so I'm not some dummy, but I don't have all the technical training. And, um, so it's really fascinating to watch someone like Patrick, I think is a genius, but, uh, <laughs> um, working on something like this. And I remember halfway through the score, we were having a conversation where I just said to Patrick how amazing I thought it was and how well he was walking that fine line of recalling the original Blade Runner with the synth, but also hearkening back to 2049 and the sort of more soundscapey vibe that that uh, score has while doing his own unique thing. And do you remember what your response, I mean, obviously you thanked me and you were flattered, but do you remember what your response was to me when I said that to you, Patrick? Uh, I don't, but I want to thank you again. Cause that was like the nicest four sentences anybody's ever said about me, but no, but I, I don't remember <laughs> what it was. So Patrick's response to me was, yeah, you know, at this point that I'm halfway through, the score is just kind of writing itself. I'm not really even thinking about it that much. It's just like coming out of me. And I thought that was such a beautiful way to describe in a nutshell the artistic process when you really get captured by something. And I can only imagine that Jamie's process in writing, of course, to write 50 pages in four days that were, you know, 80% of the way where they where they needed to be by the end process. It's not, we didn't edit that much. I mean, we spent a long time on it, but the bulk of it was there. So I imagine Jamie had a similar feeling where it was just pouring out of you. And so it was just really interesting to watch that process up close and be intimate with you guys. Um, and, and from, you know, two artists that work in a different medium. So that was really cool. And I was really grateful to be involved. It was such a great experience. Well, do you remember a, a big turning point for me with the script and with the music was when I had a dream and it was a dream that I had almost exactly a year yeah. ago. I, I still remember where I was and I, and I woke up and I was like, I have to text them about it. And I was like, this is going to sound so strange. And it still does. But I, I had this dream that there were voices um, underground in like a silo and they were screaming. But the sound that they were screaming was basically the sound of ancient religion. That it was people chanting some underground religion um, who were sort of under layers of sediment in a field somewhere. And I just I had this like, really vivid um, sonic dream about that. And I, and I put a lot of time into um, trying to like layer my voice to produce a similar effect and it didn't really work. Um, and, and I and for, for whatever reason, the ancient religion part of it really stuck with me, which is why uh, the the main theme for the the whole piece is is uh, sounds almost like plain chant. Um, it's interesting how that happens. And then and then once those pieces start falling into place, and I'm sure you guys know this from projects you've done as well, and especially with Gethsemane, once once enough things fall into place that they start kind of spawning each other, it just you you can't keep up with it. And I remember uh, I, I think I showed you guys this on one of our video calls one time in my composition notebook. Um, the first like eight pages of this of this particular notebook were like full of of sketches that I was writing down for and you know and sheet music for this thing. And then there's just no more because I was basically just I I knew what the rest of the score was and I just had to do it you know. Um, and it was, it was just profound, but honestly, it couldn't have, um, been that way had the story not been so beautifully crafted. 
had it not been so uh, resonant emotionally and with illusion, and had I not felt uh, swept up as a as a listener to it, you know, and it was very, it was very powerful. I thought going from the the first time that you know you uploaded all of the vocal takes to our Dropbox folder, and I got to hear it. And I got to hear all these people who were just, you know, had been auditioning and, you know, were sort of floating out there in the ether. And they were suddenly like real people and you were sitting with them at a, you know, of course, I'm on the other side of the country, so I wasn't there for this. Um, And you were just like sitting down at a table with them. And these words that had already kind of gotten into my heart were being said by people in such a beautiful manner. And it really, it's an amazing journey to, uh, to see one of these things through all the way. I want to actually, since we're kind of like not, not quite wrapped yet, um, something else that I think is interesting is uh, audio so like Jamie? I, I I grew up listening to way too many of these '40s and '50s radio dramas. I used to have all these anthology collections of them, and I still do. I love I love you know Adventure, The Shadow, all those. Oh, things. The Shadow is so um, good, it's so good. They're so great, and and it's just so and Orson Welles things. Obviously, oh, yeah. too, the Mercury Radio Theater. That stuff is just so engrossing, and um, and it's extraordinary because what they were doing was so simple. Like what they were doing was using. I mean, they didn't even have binaural sound for most of that stuff. Like they, they were, they were really, it was like just a guy with a couple of cups happening at off stage on in real time. Yeah. With an mm-hmm. audience, with people in the room mm-hmm. with them. Like that's, what's so incredible to me. And these professional, you know, session actors would just come in. They did, they were not off book. They had a binder in front of them. There are a few microphones in a big room that wasn't even, you know, uh, soundproof properly or anything. Cause they didn't have acoustic foam or any of that shit. And then you would have just a Foley artist who was basically just like reacting to what he was hearing them talk about. And you would have a bunch of studio execs and, and you'd have the, the person who'd written the teleplay in the room. Um, and they would just bang it out live a lot of the time. A lot of that stuff happened like in real time, which is just extraordinary. And then I think you see a real transition in the, in the art form happen when Dirk Maggs, uh, who, speaking of people who've done Alien Projects, um, did the audio adaptations for um, for Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which, of course, before it was a novel, was uh, existed in, in an audio format. And that, to me, is another huge turning point because he had this whole cinephile approach to it where it was all about really evocative soundscapes and about mixing with a lot of intricate music and things like that. Um, and, and then we come along now, you know, 30 years, well, 40 years after that. Yeah, for, yeah 40 years. And everything is, is even more different now. And we have, you know, we went from this live recording studio environment where people are just recording this on air to people with ta- physical tape, you know, taping things and spooling things and, and cutting things out to this digital audio workstation environment now where we have basically an unlimited amount of options in what we can do. And if we wanted to, we could take 20 years and do this thing because nobody's like holding us to a contract to get this out. You know what I mean? To me, one of the, the reason I'm bringing this up is because what I really love about our approach, and I saw this with Proximity and again with Gethsemane, is that we've become, I think, increasingly good at when something feels right, we do it. We just act on it. You know, we, we know we could do these things a million times and try different things out and that it could be different. But at a certain point, something is right and you kind of get it down and you lock the mix and you put it out into the world and you hope people have that same spontaneous reaction to it. You hope that the agglomeration of your own spontaneous uh, reactions to the material are magnified by the people listening to it. And what's been so great with Gethsemane, which in some ways is something that I think might not play that great with, with you know, if, if it were a film, for example, because it's very different, just like 2049 is very different from 2019, right? Um, what's wonderful is that it, I think it holds together cohesively enough that people take the chance to breathe and to listen to what it what it is, which is a very different kind of a Blade Runner story. And, um, and I, I guess the last thing I'll say is just the fan mail that we've gotten from it has just been uh just like un- unbelievably meaningful like some of the messages we've received from people about this um this project 
uh, it's it's hit people in very personal ways and very intimate ways, and that's like what art is supposed to do. And and to me, you know, we live in this virtual environment with this show and with you know our Patreon supporters and with the people listening to it, where we very rarely get to interact. You know, we obviously we had this event last year and things like that, but um, when you can put things into the world that you know are really uh, affecting people emotionally in a deep place, it's it's like the most gratifying thing as an artist you can possibly have. So thank you guys for um, including me in this journey and, and props to you for pulling off a story that I think really, really works. Absolutely. And I think uh, I did meant, forget to mention one name and it's an important name. And that is your friend, Kevin Cordes, who did the opening scroll for 2020. Gethsemane. Oh, yeah. And it's awesome. And uh, yeah, he just set it up and it was just a great entryway into um, the story that we, we, put together for everyone and we'd love to do it again uh and also and that was a go ahead just real quick while you're talking about kevin that was also an unusual first time yet familiar thing done in blade runner because both films uh in fact even blackout i think have an opening scroll but no one's reading that scroll so this is we wanted to put an opening scroll in this. We did do a visual version of it in the trailer um, that I don't think was read in the trailer because we didn't have Kevin record yet. Um, but in the show, since it's all audio, we had to have it read. And so that was very tricky because we had to make it feel like Blade Runner, but no one was used to a voiceover narration of the scroll at the beginning like that. So um, yeah, Kevin did a phenomenal job of pulling that off and, and, and we adjusted and talked about it, but that was a tricky thing to do. So yeah, it that was, was, that took a lot of work and, uh, and a little bit of a, go well, ahead. just a brief little behind this behind the scenes thing. The, the version that you hear, we, we recorded a few different takes of this based on feedback 50 from you guys takes. based on how, <laughs> based on how it was mixing with the music and things like that. So I drove back to his place a few times, which is not, it's never a problem because Kevin's one of my dearest friends and we, you know, love working together. But uh, the final take of it actually we recorded kind of as an afterthought uh, in my car during a blizzard. I had to get home and I was like, why don't we just do like, can you just come out to the car with me? Let's just like, you know, there's people in and out of the apartment building. I'm not sure we got a really clean take. Let's like just sit down. And so what you're actually hearing when he's reading this thing that sounds like so, uh, it sounds like he's in some sort of an ancient temple or something is actually just him sitting in my Honda during a blizzard. <laughs> Um, with, you know, snow pelting the roof and everything. And if you listen really closely, I think you can hear some of the texture, which we kept um, in, his, in his voice. That was actually snow outside. Kind of poetic. That's really cool. Very poetic. So really, unless anyone, anyone has anything else to say, what I want to leave the show with this episode is the essentially the synopsis of uh, 2020 Gethsemane. So if you haven't listened to it, we're just going to give you a brief synopsis. And this is found in the Podbean version of... Uh, the when we published the episode originally on June 24th of last year, which is crazy. Um, so I'm going to read this, and thanks everyone for listening. Again, this project really was possible because of uh, our patrons and Patreon. We would like to do more. None of the no one involved was paid. Um, it's a lot of work to do uh, for something that you're not paid for. We do it because we love it. We'll continue to do it to do it because we love it. But we would like to in the future if we do something on this scale because it was a big scale. I mean, if you when you hear it, it's epic. It's it's huge. I mean, it's it's like a movie. Um, but it takes a lot of work. So the more patrons we get, the easier it is for us. The easier it is for us to produce something like this. So I'll leave everyone with the. Uh, with the synopsis to 2020 Gethsemane. 
So the, and they can go to perfectorganism.com slash support forward slash support to, uh, yep. to go to our Patreon well, or, or blade, blade runner podcast.com slash support. Exactly. That too. <laughs> and also if you'd like to support this project, in addition to, to Patreon, if you'd be so kind, the soundtrack is also available for purchase on Bandcamp. Um, and you can go to our website, there's blade runner podcast.com slash Gethsemane, or you can just search Bandcamp for it. Um, and it's a donate what you want deal so you know we're not going to charge you an arm and a leg for it and you can also just stream it on Bandcamp. but if you want to support the show um all of that goes into the same account as our as our patreon money so fantastic so thanks everyone again for listening um and let me read you the synopsis 2020 gethsemane follows the lives of three nexus 8 replicants in hiding as they are confronted with a choice do they risk their lives for something bigger than them or do they remain safe Set in San Francisco in the year 2020, just after the events of Ridley Scott's film Blade Runner, Gethsemane is a full-length audio drama produced by Shoulder of Ryan, the Blade Runner podcast. find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group. <laughs>